Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Into the Breach. I'm uh, your co-host, Brian O'Keefe, and I'm joined by Jenna Usenheimer. How are you today, Jenna? I'm good, Brian. How are you? I'm excellent. We have a very exciting day today on the pod, Jenna. Uh, We have our first guest who is on for his second time. This is like a... I know, it's big time. I know, it's very exciting. I know our guest is so exciting. He's he's already woohooing in the background for everybody. Um, but the the real question we're going to have this is a guest. We he was one of the first guests we had on the show. And it was a great episode. It was a terrific episode. Terrific and whenever episode. we when we did the episode, our guests actually don't know this because we have such slick sound engineers that they were able to uh, cut this out. But I butchered his last name several times whenever we were attempting. Uh, to do this. And it got to the point where Jenna and our guests were sort of on the edge of their seat if I was actually going to get the name <laughs> right ever. But well, you're so good a- with the Usenheimer. So it just, oh, you know, you know I work yeah. with him every day. What can I say? But, but I did eventually get the name right. And we're happy to have him back. We're just going to have Jenna introduce the guests. So we just get this right so we can get on with the show. So, Jenna, why don't you introduce our guest? Well, we are delighted to welcome back to the podcast our dear friend of the pod, Nick Tulibitz. Welcome, Nick. Ooh, it's, I got it right. It's not yeah? a fun name, but it's, yeah. I mean, once you, once you do the phonetics, the, the Tulibitz, you know. So easy. Uh, anyways, I, it never bothers me. You can call me anything, Brian. Um, we've known Nick. each other long enough. So I'm happy, thrilled, ecstatic to be here. <laughs> uh, so excited to be the, the two time, the first two timer. You, That's right. You're like an actor, like an SNL. You are. Round of applause. Very exciting. Yeah. And we could not think of a better person to be back on uh, for the second time on the pod. And Nick is going to be uh, talking today about a really important topic, something that we've seen um, a real increase of in the last few years, and that is uh, sort of corporate strategic acquirers using reps and warranty insurance. And Nick is going to be going over uh, with us, um, you know, what he views as his sort of of practical tips for corporate strategic acquirers. So all of you folks uh, out there in pod land um, who are working at companies and you've heard that, uh, you know, the seller really wants you to use this product called reps and warranty insurance on the deal. And you're uh, unfamiliar with how the whole process works. Um, Nick is going to be here to explain to us, um, you know, uh, a lot of nuts and bolts things that can make your life a lot easier and make everybody's lives a lot easier um, and how to use reps and warranty insurance. So, so Nick, uh, maybe we could just um, kick it off uh, in terms of, you know, corporate strategic acquires, you know, what are things that they need to know sort of early on about reps and warranty insurance, how this is going to impact the deal, how this is going to impact uh, the due diligence process? Yeah, and as much as I'd love to think that everyone has listened to, you know, every version of the podcast as going far back as, as episode two, for those who <laughs> somehow don't know who Nick Tulovitz is, uh, I am the uh, co-head of the M&A Insurance at Assured Partners, um, along with my partner, Darlene Heckman. We're both M&A attorneys. 
we practiced for a number of years in the private equity space and uh, moved into brokering. Uh, Assured Partners, you know, our, our team were a boutique practice at one of the top 10 largest retail insurers uh, in the U.S. So, um, you know, our, our group is small and focused on certain types of deals uh, and the clients that we work with, um, but we are certainly you know, active in the market. And I think 6% of, of all our deals were billion-dollar deals, which was a, wow. a pretty good percentage given, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the volume That's obviously great. is not the same as some others, but, um, you know, we see we see all types of deals. So, anyway. Enough about me. Sorry to have to even do that. No, absolutely. But, uh, <clears throat> corporate strategic deals. And I think one of the reasons why when I brought this topic to you guys um, as one that I thought could be helpful, you know, last time we got together, we were just talking about general tips for rep warranty insurance and trying to make it, um, you know, a, a smoother experience and, and practical views. Um, one of the scenarios that we often see and, and, and more now than in the past are Strategic acquirers that, you know, essentially we're talking about something that's just not a private equity sponsored platform deal, right? So it can, it might be a public company acquiring a private company, maybe a privately owned company uh, doing an acquisition. It may be a portfolio company of a, of a PE sponsor that is given sort of the authority to go out and, and do their own deals. Um, the main point being is that, you know, this is a strategic acquisition that's going to be brought into an existing operating company, right? And everything that goes along with that. Um, I think these types of deals, um, obviously the, the product, Red Morning Insurance, took off with private equity. Um, strategic was a little bit slower to adopt, I think partly because in-house counsel, you know, were at a law firm for a little bit longer and uh, the law firms were driving this at the PE shops. Um, but we're at a point now where I think, you know, everybody is familiar and using it. And to Brian's point before, you know, if it's new to you or even you know, if you're a strategic buyer who has used reps and maybe struggled a little bit with the process or had some hiccups in the process, hopefully we've got some stuff in here that um, can make your next go at it a little bit smoother and um, a little bit more uh, thoughtful and, and, and helpful. So <clears throat> the first thing that we have on the list, we've got cute little titles that I put to some of these. Know before <laughs> you go, right? Be strategic early on. And, you know, not to be given strategic for strategic deals, but the main point here is, you know, you want to be thoughtful about the process when you're going to use rep warranty insurance. And, and you want to be thoughtful about it early on, right? So while the process of rep warranty insurance and sort of getting at the underwriting is, is always late in the game for people because your diligence has to be done and, you know, you're, you're within weeks of signing your agreement. As soon as you know in your transaction that your structure is going to use rep warranty insurance, you want to plan ahead as to how this process is going to play out. Uh, and, and I do this specifically when I work with strategics because um, there's so many other things going on, right, that, that they're working on. And to um, game plan this stream of work is so crucial to avoiding so many headaches that can come up um, that if you spend the time up front and plan it out with your broker, with your advisor, uh, you will make your life you know, a billion times easier and, and you'll make the lives of the, your team easier, right? Because I think a lot of the thought of this is when you're talking about these strategic acquisitions, you've got teams of people doing a lot of work. And the thing that I've always thought about, and I thought about this when, you know, I was practicing and we do, you know, management diligence calls on the legal side, the first thing I'd always do is introduce myself and just thank people for the fact that like, this isn't their day job, right? They're operating and running a company and now going through this process. So being thoughtful about that and how you can help people um, and do that, I think is just another part of sort of the making everything human uh, mindset that I, that I try to do. Um, so again, being strategic and thoughtful is about 
you know, making the whole team's lives a little bit easier. Um, so the, the first point I've got on my list, um, you know, in addition to sort of making plan what that plan will be, is an acknowledgement that with rep warranty insurance, um, strategic buyers are attractive clients for insurers, right? And, and the reason that right. I say this and I tell them this is because strategic buyers are living with this business day in, day out, right? They're absorbing it into their every day. Um, there is just inevitably going to be a slightly more conservative view outlook than, uh, at least from the outside of what, you know, an investor simply, you know, on the PE sponsor side may be, may be doing. Um, so I think that, that fact gives insurers some comfort that, you know, people are really going to be concerned and looking for the type of issues that could come up because they're going to have to live with them, uh, in their, in their actual, you know, day job. Um, so using that in addition to all of the other factors, um, first thing I've got is, is sort of maximizing your NBIL submission, right? The non-binding indication letter. Yeah, and what does that mean? Warranty insurance. Yeah, so we talk about warranty insurance, right? We talk about sort of two major stage processes, right? First is just going out to the market and getting terms and getting sort of what your options are. The second is the underlying, um, the, the underwriting in earnest. And that first step of going out to market, right? You're selling your deal to the you know, 24 insurers in the rep warranty insurance market. And this is obviously a process that you work on, you know, with your broker uh, and your counsel and, and the broker goes out and, and solicits those terms. And I think an important thing for everyone to be involved in, not just the broker, but, you know, everyone to be aware of is that at that stage, right, there's, there's limited information that insurers are going to be getting. And the more that you can strengthen that information that they are getting, the more attractive your deal is going to be, the more competitive terms you will get. So specifically with strategic deals where, we know there are some pitfalls that can come up for buyers that the insurers will have to work through. Working out and, and adding things into the submission, like who is addressing all areas of diligence, can be a very you know strong way to be transparent about, hey, this is not only a good deal, this is a great buyer who's thought through these things, and you are going to have a good, clean underwriting process because we're flushing all of this out, as opposed to leaving that in, any of that up to chance where you know, as an insurer, I'm seeing a deal. I don't know if it's their first time using reps. I don't know what kind of headache I may be going through. You know, these little things may make a deal more attractive, which may get you better terms. Um, so being thoughtful and maximizing the MBL submission, you know, one of the things I think about is, is including sort of the work streams of diligence, um, which, which flows into the next part of, of what those <laughs> diligence work streams will be. Um, you know, preparing internal teams with respect to the anticipated work product. Um, before they actually are, are fully undergoing their diligence efforts. So the number one point that's always made, <clears throat> excuse me, with strategic deals versus sort of a PE sponsor deal is that strategic clients oftentimes have the talent to do the diligence in-house as opposed to commissioning all of the diligence out and getting a report from the third party. And I specifically use that language because I think it's important to acknowledge not just that, oh, strategics use in-house diligence and it's not as good as third-party diligence. No, like they have the talent in-house. People are very capable of doing the diligence in-house. But also keep in mind, if, they, if it was their only job, I'm sure they'd be able to do it great. But they're doing this while running a company. So, um, you know, there's an understanding of sometimes, you know, it, it may not merit commissioning certain work because you've got the talent in-house to do it. But there are areas that may still, you know, benefit and some that need the outside assistance. Um, but preparing the teams, if you are going to have internal diligence, preparing the teams ahead of time to know what to expect, right? That oftentimes in-house diligence, you know, they, they don't need to prepare a report 
right? They may just report up because they flushed out what they needed to flush out and, you know, and then they move on. And making sure that those folks are aware just by the structure of rep warranty insurance, you're bringing in a third party insurer, right? So their file needs to include some type of written work product that identifies the work that was done and any risks, you know, that may have been um, uncovered, right? So it's a combination of an acknowledgement of the scope and, and the, the efforts, as well as the analysis. And that some of that in, in some form, right, it doesn't need to be at the level of a third party commission report, but in some form, you want to document that to be able to give to the insurer, because you're going to talk about it with them in the underwriting call, Holly. but they will need it for their file. And the last thing you ever want to do is tell these folks who are doing all this work, that they go out and do the work and then have to go back and redo it in order to document it. And so, so getting ahead of that is a huge point, right? Yeah, and I think, and I think one thing we like to do is, um, and I agree with you that that format can sometimes be different than what we see in like a regular, we see like a lot of like spreadsheets or something, right? Like it may be mm -hmm. that they just give us spreadsheets or something, they give us something, but it really is helpful for the underwriting council and the insurer if when we go into the call, we at least have something to look at, something to see that they have examined these issues. Um, because if if we have nothing, then you know we're just going to the call blind and the call is going to take longer. We're going to probably be asking questions that seem annoying and very basic whenever um, you know you've you've kind of already done that. And then I think too, Nick, we were we were talking a little bit about um, you know just sort of managing the expectations on on the diligence and how just how critical the diligence is going to drive the process for the insurer and drive exclusions yeah. and the like. And I think that's also <clears throat> an important point for, um, you know, the corporate people to understand just how important the diligence is in the reps and warranty process. Yeah. And, and on the work product point, right. And I think a lot of brokers that are you know, doing this regularly should be able to assist. Like oftentimes what I'll do is I have a sort of skeleton form of an internal diligence memo that I can give the client just to give a sense of what it could look like, right? Because the whole point is you want to make this as painless as possible for those teams. And if you just tell a team that doesn't do internal reporting on their diligence, like, yeah, just put a report together. The sort of first point that they come to is like, all right, where do I even start, right? But if you give them some form to be able to use that it addresses scope and analysis, like that alone is, is a huge step that takes that off their plate. Um, and that I think most, you know, most workers in the space that do this regularly should be able to assist with. Um, on the coverage expectations, Brian, yeah, I mean, I think that is a crucial sort of, you know, to us, fundamental, easy understanding that, you know, the, the whole basis of rep warranty insurance is coming from the diligence. But, you know, again, folks don't necessarily do this every day the way that we do and acknowledging and, and um, addressing the importance of the diligence and the purpose, right, as opposed to this is totally. just what's required and all these every time, you know, acknowledging the reason that this is so important and and that you know as that plan of diligence comes out you know what what will be the the fruition of that right so rep warranty insurance the exclusions you know don't come from the, the insurers or you know you guys as counsel to the insurers right nobody's just making these up everybody, everybody just said we should be repeated again all right you know <laughs> yeah we don't want to have do not come. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah i mean nope, we nope. say all the time like we don't we don't get paid by the exclusion right like quite the opposite <laughs> for people who are familiar with how this is sort of structured so yes like it is stuff that is usually being driven by diligence or oftentimes lack of diligence that um and we love nothing more than to get off the call and say, 
you know, this was a great call and these, you know, there really aren't any issues. So I think, um, you know, having corporate people understand that dynamic is actually very important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more that you've like been in this space and have seen the, the full cycle of, of what rep warranty insurance is, like exclusions don't help in a claim scenario, right? They're just, they're just another huge problem that can be, you know, a hurdle for all parties involved. So if you don't have, like, if you go through underwriting clean, you have your claim, you, you have enough to work through with that claim. Like you don't need right. the, you know, the addition of like, so insurers don't want it is my main point, right? It doesn't help anyone. Um, there's two ways that you get an exclusion of rep warranty insurance, right? One is there's a known exposure, material exposure uncovered by the diligence, right? Because rep warranty insurance is intended to cover the unknown. Uh, and the, the second way is exclusion by omission, right? There's an area that, that just didn't yeah. have sufficient diligence to flush that out. And that's the one that's avoidable. And that is why you want to be very thoughtful up front about making sure that all the diligence streams are covered, right? Because um, especially working with strategics, there just may be a, a vision of the things that they care about, and they may not be a serial acquirer, right? So it may just be a matter of like acknowledging or reminding all of the different work streams that need to be addressed that maybe, you know, weren't big focuses for them, or maybe someone is addressing internally, but wouldn't have viewed it in light of rep warranty insurance. Um, so some of those areas going to sort of the internal versus external diligence. Um, the first one, and I think the most important one, is financial and tax, right? The, so in most deals, especially, certainly if it's the target is unaudited, it requires a quality of earnings, a third-party quality of earnings. Um, and even when the target is audited, right? That's, I think, when we have the discussion more often. Because sometimes clients, you know, they again, they have the talent in-house. They've got very competent accounting and financial background folks that are capable of, of reviewing um, at the same, you know, all of the same types of information and quality of earnings. Um, but I will say that it is the one area that, despite the cost, I have never seen it not merit, you know, what, what it's worth um, in being able to rely on a third party to go in and flush out everything that should be flushed out without okay. any views of, yeah, without any bias of like, this is similar to how we do it or any other. Um, I can comfortably say I have had multiple deals where a strategic buyer was sort of forced to do additional diligence and bring in third-party advisors that they wouldn't have typically done and that they actually uncovered something that, you know, through the process, they were able to basically protect themselves before going to a deal that they very well might not have, have caught if they didn't go through the vetting process that is required by revenue warranty insurance. So I mean, in tax, quality of earnings on the financial side, yeah. In ahead, tax sorry. in particular, like with the strategic buyers, when they do the in-house diligence, we find that they are, and this is a generalization, of course, but like relying on management representations, which for something like tax is like extra concerning, or I can't tell you how many times in an asset deal, you know, it's like, there's nothing written. Yeah. We get on the call and basically the answer is like, it's an asset deal. We didn't look at any of this. And as you know, like that can leave us all feeling very uncomfortable when it comes to tax. So, you know, we could not agree more that external reports on tax and I'm sure, you know, financial as well is just very, very helpful. Yeah. The asset deal is always a tricky discussion because, you know, in, in theory, yeah, you know, if it's an asset deal and taxes are an excluded liability, that being said, you're still getting certain reps that have implications and there are certain Absolutely. liabilities that can still follow. Yeah. And, you know, on the asset deals, obviously, you don't need the level of in-depth tax diligence that you might on an equity deal. 
But what I tell clients is like, you still always want someone to kick on the tires and making sure that they're comfortable, that the company yes. has done it the right way and that they've filed the right taxes. I think the other point on tax diligence on equity deals, you know, even more importantly, is it's not just a matter of reviewing the tax filings of the company. It's what filings should they have been making, right? So right, exactly. that's the more important exactly. point because if you're just reviewing their you know, federal and state taxes that they file, you're not yeah. addressing you know, the whole point of this that should they be filing sales and use taxes in XYZ states. Um, so so it's, it's the broader than just what they're presenting you. It's what Please should be there and, and are they compliant? Um, similarly, with in, insurance and IT, right? When that, that work is being well, done IT for sure. The focus, yeah, the focus often is on sort of the integration go forward, right? And Brian, you made a point of this, oftentimes you see the insurance, well, you know, we're just bringing it under our umbrella. And again, this is a matter of getting ahead of it where you're telling the folks that are going to be doing that work, listen, think about pre-close because what all the rep warranty insurance cares about is what, what is available and what was available for pre-closing issues. So on the insurance front, you know, if, if they're coming into your umbrella, sure, but what type of retroactive coverage is going to be there? Um, and on the IT side, right, it's not just a matter of bringing them into your systems. It's a matter of what their systems were and what potentially could have come from that, um, because those are the risks that we're covering for rep warranty insurance. And I think just yeah. that mindset is often not there that you just need to sort of focus people on. Yeah, that's this is a frustrating one. I think we've had a, many times where we are with uh, corporate buyers and they have the director of insurance on and they say, Oh, well, they have a, you know, they have a $1 million cyber policy. We have a $10 million cyber policy and they're just going to roll into ours. But, you know, since cyber's a claims made policy, you know, it, essentially whenever the change of control happens, that old policy is going to go away. And when, unless you have something on the new end, it's going to take care of the prior acts or some other mechanism, you know, then the reps and warranty insurer is going to be the one it's going to be dollar one and on something like cyber where that's a very hard market right now. And there are lots of claims. That's usually not something that um, a lot of reps and warranty insurers want to have. And I think that, you know, it's, it's frustrating for us whenever we're sort of asking those questions on the call for the first time. And we feel like this is the first time anybody is really kind of thinking about this issue. So I think that's one in particular where uh, sort of being prepared ahead of time um, can really make it. Totally. Yeah. So go on. Yeah. Go on. And if Go ahead, Nick. Yep. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. No, I was just going to say, I mean, this is, it's one of those things where I think folks oftentimes, especially in those areas, when they're thinking about it, right, they think about, well, pre-closing, like that's an issue with the deal that will get handled. But the whole point of rep warranty insurance, like this is what's covering the deal. And we need to be thinking about the pre-closing liabilities. That's the, the reason why we need to address these things. Um, you know, it's, yeah, that's my point on that. Yeah. And then, Maybe if you want to talk a little bit um, after after they've uh, you know done this work on the front end, I think your second point you had for us was you know called a call to arms, preparing for the underwriting call. We like that. That sounds very um, serious, very to the uh, breach. Yes, yeah. right. It's kind of yeah, sort of Shakespearean. So um, maybe what you want to talk about when you uh, uh, what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean so call to arms the. You want to prepare the, the folks that are going to participate in the underwriting call. And you know, keeping in mind, this is, this is a weird thing for most people, right? To have to go into a discussion, a call, oftentimes you know, with attorneys on the call, right? The, the, the seller's counsel, the insurer's counsel may be on the call, some that, that may not have been called. But the point being is that you're on a call now having to talk about your diligence work 
and justify it to a group that includes attorneys who are questioning. It seems like they're questioning, what did you do? Was it enough? And I think, you know, that's, that's a daunting position to be in if not sort of clarified the folks up front as to what the real purpose of the rep warranty insurance call is um, managing the call on the broker and the insurer side, right. To make sure that it doesn't seem like an acquisition um, and, and just preparing folks so that they're comfortable, you know, giving the answers that they're giving. And, and if they don't have something they're comfortable saying, you know, let's, let's have that as a follow-up. Um, you know, the, the first thing I think is just making sure that you know, who's going to be on the call um, and, and not make any assumptions, right? So if you are working with, um, you know, a, a, internal counsel, um, you know, don't assume that they've looped in their financial folks. Don't assume that they've, they've looped in the tax or any other, you know, folks that they've commissioned. You want to make sure that everybody is aware of, you know, who is going to be on the call and, and who's going to be addressing what, um, so that it's very clear and you don't have any trip on some call and, you know, folks sort of stumbling into who's going to be addressing what, um, you know, then, then it's that is of, very it, frustrating on some calls. There's like a question, yep. one person answers, and then someone else jumps in, and then they correct the answer, and then a third person talks. And it's just like, get it would be so much smoother and move the call along faster if it was just like they knew the work stream and one person answered. So I could not agree more with that recommendation. And there's nothing that derails the call faster than, than when just the people aren't prepared yes. as to how the process should work, right? Who's yep. going to be the lead? Um, for, for each topic. And then the lead may you know, designate a question to someone else, but at least there's one person who's responsible to be able to drive that section on behalf of the insured. Um, so, you know, other sort of tips when you get on these calls, um, you know, the, the first thing that I tell clients is, you know, this is sort of common crowd, right, is, is reminding folks sort of why the call is what it is, but also, you know, explaining what it is and that it doesn't have to be daunting. It's not an interrogation. It's really just a matter of verification of the work that's been provided and acknowledging to them that like, hey, the, the insurer and their counsel have seen your work. So you're not starting from scratch here. And right. they just want to hear from you and have a conversation about it. I think that's, that's the other big point is that it's, it's a conversation, not an interrogation. Um, a couple of other little tips um, that I think sometimes folks don't necessarily aren't, aren't um, uh, that they don't think about up front. You know, have copies of your reports and your transaction docs in hand for that call because there just may be references going back to them. And it's just easier if you have it you know, readily available. Um, and sometimes you know, your other counsel and commissioned folks may not be prepared to have that on hand. And right. if you've had your tax folks, right, if you have outside financial folks, likely, and they should have reviewed the reps, but they may not think to have that in front of them. So you know, making sure that they all have the latest transaction docs so everybody's talking about the same thing. Um, Review the full list of questions in advance. So, you know, we talked about designated person for each section. Even if it's not part of your section, take five, 10 minutes and just read the, through the full list because there totally. may be another question in another section that you are better to answer and you will help, you know, the whole group having seen that, having addressed it. And so you're not, you know, we're not bouncing back and forth and you're in another section when you're not on the call and, you know, there was the, the right person could have answered it earlier. Um, and then the last one is we talked about designating a lead respondent for each section, which, which is key to just keep things you know, flowing. Um, I think this is sort of on the advisor, you know, broker, attorney, um, and even in-house counsel side of sort of guiding the process and shepherding. Um, 
you know, knowing the style of the rep warranty insurer that you select, it can be important because there are different approaches to underwriting calls, right? Some carriers will provide a broad, you know, a broad topic list. Uh, others will provide very specific walkthrough questions um, and, you know, being prepared for, for what that means, right? So if you're preparing a team that's not used to doing this, having a carrier that provides, you know, those specific questions can be helpful because they see exactly what it is. Um, that's not to say that that's a better method because the, the carriers that provide topics, the purpose of that is because it, it, it leads to more conversation as opposed to being, you know, TikTok through uh, interrogation questions. Um, that being said, when you have a carrier that is going to be more of the sort of topic approach, it can be helpful just to give folks on the team, you know, examples of the specific questions that could be asked, just so that they're visualizing, you know, how this conversation will go. It'll allow them to prepare better um, and, you know, just to think through the different things that could be asked of them. Um, and everyone will always be in a better place for that. Um, so, you know, understanding what approach your your carrier will be taking and then, you know, addressing that and prepping people, you know, accordingly is, is important. Yeah. So I would just add that um, sometimes we hear on the call, like, oh, we can't answer that question because it wasn't on the agenda. And we can appreciate that, but like, it would be helpful sometimes, you know, some carriers have like very deal specific agendas and there's not going to be a deviation. And it's very obvious. And some markets use sort of like, uh, you know, pretty much the standard questions over and over again. And they you know, and I think the message is supposed to be they make people may deviate based what's on the like diligence. So you should be prepared, especially if there's like an issue that's identified in the reports. So that's also an area where I feel like it would benefit everyone if the, you know, the buyer and their team was more prepared to just like, look, if there's a huge issue in your diligence materials and it's not addressed in like the standard agenda, like you should expect a question on that, right? Yeah. 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 And, and understanding that the point of the call is to minimize the follow-ups. Right. So exactly. just saying like, well, it's not on the agenda. We're not going to address it. It's not going to go away. Right. Now you're going to have to get it in a, in exactly. a written form. That's, that's probably exactly going to open right. up more when you have the opportunity to just have a conversation about it and potentially not put it bed when it was a major issue. It, it, and I think, too, Nick, I completely agree with that. And I think, too, and this actually goes back to my days when I was working primarily as, as buy side counsel, when I would get an agenda and there would be the specific questions on it, you know, I would take an hour or two sometimes even ahead of time to sort of annotate out like what I thought the answer would be. And it's not that I would sit there and read it verbatim, but I would at least have the answers in front of me and have, you know, have this in an organized way. And I think that, I think that is really critical because I think that it helps you stay focused. It helps you stay on, on pace and, and, and just has the important points in front of you. I think, um, you know, these calls can, you know, sometimes you're moving ahead, sometimes you're moving behind, sometimes you have to jump on at different points. There's a lot of things that can kind of uh, lead people to get flustered in the middle of the call. And I think that if you don't have anything in front of you with this, um, it can be very difficult, actually. And if you're not, you know, doing this all the time, that I think it can actually be very, uh, very difficult. So I think spending some time ahead of time and trying to annotate the agenda, if there is one, and trying to get your ducks in a row is, um, is, is really important. Yeah. I agree. Again, you know, the whole point is you want to minimize the follow-ups. So anything you can do to put yourself in a better place to get things answered on this call, the benefit of the call is you can talk through it and, and put it to bed and not have to readdress it um, and deal with it. Uh, they can drag the process out. So the last Absolutely. of the, the three really is the follow-ups wrapping up, right, which flows into what we're talking about with the underwriting call. 
Uh, after the entering call, you're going to be getting your follow-up questions. There inevitably will be some on uh, some deals, one of the others. Hopefully, the benefit of the call is, is minimizing those. But the sooner those follow-ups are chased down, the sooner the policy can be wrapped up, right? And I think folks all want the rep warranty process to be put to bed as soon as it can so that they can focus on all the other things they've got to focus on. So as soon as you get those follow-ups, similar to delegating people for the call, delegate responsibility for each response. Um, you know, don't make any assumptions that it's just being passed around and the folks that, you know, are, are it's their topic should be addressing it. But just come out and make sure that folks are addressing each section because confusion begets delays, right? The, if you have people that aren't sure, it's going to drag the process and you'd be losing time. Um, vet the follow-ups before passing along. Uh, this is sort of a, a broker slash um, consultant advisor point. Um, when you're getting follow-ups, especially from in-house uh, folks that are doing the work, you know, they may just be quickly typing things up and you just want to make sure that the way it's being presented to the insurer is what's intended and yes. you're reading it for, you know, for the way that it could be read because it's, it's obvious it's always full transparency. We're not yeah. hiding ball on anything, but you also want to avoid any confusion and avoid looking like there's something that somebody now needs to ask more about. Um, so you just want to be thoughtful about what's being presented to the insurer because you really only get one opportunity to do that because if that confusion comes, like it's going to get chased down and you've added work. Um, yes. And then if, if there's we additional agree. diligence required that can't be completed by signing, um, you know, someone come up and realizes that there's a, a little bit of a hole. Uh, understanding that conditional exclusions are always an option. And we can do a little throwback to our, you know, episode two talking about conditional exclusions. But they're, you know, a tool in the chest uh, <laughs> that can keep the process rolling and doesn't mean that you have to be uh, held up um, on, on one topic or one, one issue. And, and Nick, really I, think, cool. I think you set the market on that, by the way, because I, I think we've seen a great increase in the use of conditional exclusion since the time we did that first podcast. And I think uh, everyone obviously listened to the podcast and said that you had the best solution. We did it. So, you know, so. we did it. So all, all the credit to us. That's <laughs> important. And it just it moves things along. Um, and that and the last is a simple sort of, you know, keep passing the turns of the transaction docs along in real time. Um, I know I mean, certain council have views on this that they only want to pass their turns so that, you know, seller's turns aren't being misinterpreted because they're not going to be. But once you get down to the, the final, you know, throws of this, just keeping every turn in the hands of the insurer will minimize the lag time uh, as you get this. Totally right? agree. Because they need to review it. And yes. you just got to acknowledge that. And like the sooner it's just, if you keep the turns going, those final views are going to be very quick, you know, minor points. Whereas if you waited five turns, you know, they're going to be seeing a much larger markup. It's going to take them longer to work through. So you know, the more no turns question. that you pass, yeah, yeah the, the smoother yeah. that process goes. I would also say that on the underwriting call, we as counsel, we often don't have the most up-to-date transactional documents, which is fine. We understand. But there are usually going to be questions that relate to like the current version of the documents. And sometimes, you know, people answering the questions are surprised or it seems to throw them off that we haven't seen the most recent version. So that, I think that would also it's a good advice either to be aware that we don't have it or to make an effort to make sure that we do. So it just like streamlines the discussion, as you said, and avoids the need for, you know, delays or unnecessary follow-ups. Yeah. We'll qualify yeah. back in the, the tip section of making sure that everybody has the latest up-to-date transaction docs. So you're all talking apples to apples. Exactly. Exactly. So that well, closes up. The, the next section was a best practice, which we think we've talked about, Jenna. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, Awesome. So we really appreciate all of your insight. We totally agree. I'm sure our listeners do too. And now, I mean, you've already been on the pod. So it's the same questions that we have for you once more into the breach. So 
what is the biggest change you think we'll see in reps in the next 12 months? You could also pass since you already answered the question the last time you were here. We could could do like a rewind back to your first one, Nick, and see if your prediction was right. But we won't do that. You know, I don't even remember what it was. but I I don't remember either. I don't remember what it was. (laughs) I'm sure it was right. I'm sure it was right. I mean, that was October, October 2020. And, you know, two years later, um, a lot has changed. And, you know, last year, 2021, just how chaotic it was, I think, um, it just, it changed the market because obviously, you know, people hired more, there was capacity issues, there's new carriers coming in. Um, this year, you know, not as busy and people sort of adjusting to what that, what that means. Um, when a lot going on the world, things will pick back up. Um, the biggest change that I think we'll see in the market I think biggest change, there will be claims. There's going to be a lot of claims in 2021 um, and just making sure that everybody's handling them the right way, not just a matter of results, but like how they're processed because that affects the product and affects people's view of the product. So I think you know, 2021 was a, a, That's a, a point. bang up year, but the result from that will be inevitably that there are going to be you know, more claims than have been in past years. Yeah, understood, understood. All right. And then again, if you want to add, if you have any new piece of career advice for someone who may be interested in getting into transactional risk or reps, I mean, you already gave advice, so don't feel the need to like make up anything else. But if you have something to share, uh, we're happy back to hear. And listen to my old advice. Yeah. I, mean, I know. It's, yeah. It's, still a, it's a great industry. And I think, you know, a lot of people still are, are coming in. And, and I think after last year, there's people who are looking at it in a different light and are, and are realizing, you know, the, the possibilities um, and that may are considered as career that they might not have a few years ago. And I think the number one piece of advice I give is, is get to know people um, because you know, this yeah. is a very much a relationship business. Um, the industry has grown, but it's still small in the sense of, you know, people know, you know, everybody else and, and, and operate and work together and, and get along and, um, you know, I think the, the most important way to sort of make a name for yourself and, and, you know, get established in this business is obviously through relationships and everybody else that's in the space and getting to know them and respect them and um, just appreciate what everybody's been through and is going through and, and doing. Great. Well, we couldn't agree right. more with that sentiment. And, um, and we've certainly appreciated the relationship we, we've had with you. So thank you. And I think that's a good example of that as well. So, so right back final- at you, Brian. Our final question, our sort of mystery fun question. Now, at the end of the breach here, we are uh, we are very into the holidays. We've had uh, discussions of Jenna's Hanukkah socks, and we had a- You mean the Hanukkah week. face shields from my mother. Hanukkah face shield, Hanukkah socks. <laughs> it's a COVID gift. Halloween-themed um, discussion a little while ago. So as we head into the last part of the year here, I think the next big holiday on the calendar is Thanksgiving. And uh, we didn't know, Nick, if you had a, a favorite Thanksgiving food, a favorite Thanksgiving tradition. Does your family pay, play like touch football in the backyard? What is what is the Thanksgiving, uh, you know, day, Thanksgiving morning in your household and your family look like? Yeah, um, I mean, I will say Thanksgiving plays second fiddle to Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the oh, biggest clearly. holiday in my family. Yeah. It's a holiday before a holiday. You can't beat that. And We've got, you know, Polish and Italian coming together with all sorts of foods. Um, but Thanksgiving is a great lead up. Um, I think my favorite, and it's not, you know, unique to my family. Like I said, it's sort of a, a second uh, holiday, but, you know, turkey the next day, 
right? All of the leftover turkey. So turkey, like turkey as of Thanksgiving, sure, it's great and gravy's nice, but like leftover turkey and turkey sandwiches and that's special, like throw a little mashed potatoes in there. That's that's my favorite part is the, the post-Thanksgiving leftovers. Oh, who can beat that? That sounds terrific. And uh, yeah. Jenna, you being in New York, you probably aren't excited by this, but I've, I've always been obsessed with the Macy's parade and I always like get up on the Thursday morning and watch it and like the whole thing. So um, I don't know. That's kind of the thing that I like the most about Thanksgiving. What about you? No, I, Brian, you're right because I have it on in the morning and, and this has been a thing that my wife is teasing me about because with the parade, the only thing I care about, I love the marching bands. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's like, I was super weird. Band. She's like, "Oh, yeah. you, your favorite part is like the high school marching bands and yeah. the parade, but because they're the ones playing live music, right? And, and right. they're out there, they're doing it, right. and like it's, it's obviously it's a great experience for them, and it's always fun. And you only sort of hear that marching band at like you know football games or the rare occasions you, you just get that experience. So I do yeah. enjoy the 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 marching bands and the Thanksgiving Day parade. All right, all right, Jenna, you have any Thanksgiving traditions that? Well, pre-COVID, we all used to go to Ann Connie's house, which was very Uh nice. But um, in COVID, it was like too many people. And now she's like discovered that not cooking turkey is like much better than cooking a turkey. So (laughs) now I just like make a reservation and go out in the city with friends. It's really not (laughs) anywhere as exciting as it used to be. Well, we can't ever deny being with friends is great. And we were glad to have a friend of the pod on today with Nick. And thank so you smooth, Brian. So much, yeah, Nick. thanks, this Nick. Is, uh, this is a terrific thank topic. You. I think very timely. And I think this is uh, uh, something that uh, hopefully will provide a lot of guidance um, to corporate and strategic acquirers in the future about how the reps warranty process works and how they can uh, get the best possible policy results. So, yeah, if anybody has questions, they can always reach out. I mean, you'll get all my contact information. I think people know that's like, regardless of who your broker is, I'm, I'm happy to be a resource. It's all about relationships in our industry. So it's, it's not a business point. It's a pure relationship point that if you have something come up and you know you think that there's a question or we can be helpful, that's what all of us are here for. It's a reason why this stuff exists. Right. Great. That's well, awesome. We, we appreciate it. Generous with your time and everybody would benefit from talking with you about it. So great. Well, thank you very much, Nick and Jenna. We have finished another episode successful. of the pod. Yeah. Um, successful episode of the pod. Uh, threw in some Thanksgiving at the end there. So um, maybe we'll get dressed up as pilgrims or something, right? You know? Pass. Pass. Hard pass. <laughs> hard pass. All right. Well, thank you everybody pass. for listening. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cyfarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, This podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.